you so much to Richard for the invitation and thank you to Rocky for the coordination and I'm excited to share this book with all of you folks today. As mentioned to Richard earlier that I actually had the pleasure of presenting here about five years ago for the Immigration Working Group. Lucy Nyapen invited me and it was the first time that I was sharing about my dissertation with a big audience. So it's a nice round full circle to come back and share the book with you today. So I'm excited to talk a little bit about the book and hopefully only talk for about 25, 30 minutes. But before I jump into the book, oh, what's happening? Awesome. I'd like to share a quick one minute video that I think will help with just providing some of the historical background for folks who might not be as familiar with the cases. At 21, Guy lost his homeland. After South Vietnam fell in 1975, Thai escaped and resettled in West Berlin. As Thai lost a homeland, Jin gained a fuller one. Born in North Vietnam, she went to work in the Eastern Bloc at 18. Just months after Thai and Jin arrived in Europe, the Berlin Wall fell. The 90s were a time of massive upheaval, but also of ethnic solidarity. Yet, by the time I arrived in Berlin, people warned me that there were two Vietnamese communities there, embodied by Jin and Thai north and south, and they didn't get along. So how did we get here? I invite you to follow along with Dai, Jin, and others like them as they rebuild their lives after war and border crossings. Along the way, they teach us to rethink the nation and our role in it. Take a look. But as I mentioned in the trailer, I came to Berlin in 2013, and I was really interested in how people learned about politics, how they carried it with them after war and border crossings. But once I got there, it seems like it was actually going to be a, a difficult thing to ask about. And in part, I'm happy to see more in the Q&A, it was because there was such a convergence on how people felt about politics. But I originally came there wanting to ask about politics because at the time, I had just finished my master's doing work on Vietnamese American communities in Southern California. And it seems like my interest in politics was really difficult to tease out conceptually. So if you were someone coming from Vietnam after 1975 to the United States, I had a hard time distinguishing, did you carry anti-communist politics with you across borders? Was it something that you learned coming to the U.S. in the context of Cold War, U.S. Red Scare, and all of these things? So I wanted to find a place where there was a long history of a leftist, strong leftist tradition. And the way that I stumbled upon this was rather serendipitously. So I was practicing German, my German language skill through the Deutsche Welle. And I stumbled upon this piece by Sebastian Schubert that's called Berlin's Vietnamese Wall. So this subheading here says, the German capital is home to thousands of Vietnamese, but the communities in the East and those in the West remain divided even 15 years after the fall of the Berlin Wall. So I thought here was this really neat case in which folks from the same country that was divided and then reunified left from different migration streams, one as refugees to countries that we are much more familiar with, the US, France, Canada, Australia, but also West Germany and the ex-slave of West Berlin. And then at the same time, really just starting months apart, a second migration stream leaving from unified Vietnam, going to the Eastern Bloc, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, the USSR. And then they converged in the city of Berlin, 
when it reunified and it gave me this natural experiment almost. Economists don't like it when they call it that, but almost a natural experiment to think about what happens when folks who were from two sides of the Civil War ended up in the same place, but the results were to opposite effects in Vietnam versus Germany. So as I said in the trailer, when I got there, I would start asking people about what, what are your lives like as Vietnamese folks? And I'm, I'm just a student who's here interested in learning about the lives of Vietnamese people in Berlin. And across the board, whether I was talking to folks at restaurants, grocery stores, at, at different cultural spaces, they would say to me something to the effect of, you have to understand that there's not one, but two Vietnamese communities here and they really don't get along. And people would tell me this without prompting. So I didn't start by saying anything about, oh, I know there are refugees and also contract workers. They just said, I'm a Vietnamese American graduate student. I'm interested in the lives of Vietnamese people here. People also told me this very wistfully. And so one example is a woman I call Lan. She is from Southern Vietnam and she came to West Berlin in the 1980s through family reunification for refugees. And since then, she has she's never gone back to Vietnam by the time that I met her in 2014 or 2015. And we were in her apartment. We were talking one day, one night, really, into the early hours of the morning. She was in a really wistful mood. We were watching these scenes on TV of the Vietnamese landscape. She was getting really nostalgic. And she said, I look at Germans, and I feel that they're so lucky. Why were they able to heal like that after reunification when we haven't? So I want to be clear that Germans don't actually feel like they've fully healed after reunification. And there's also a hierarchy among Germans, folks who grew up in the West versus those who grew up in the East. But still, so many people express this kind of sentiment to me that I really wanted to understand what are they implying about some concrete category that they feel has been broken and needs to be made whole again. Or put differently, why do these homeland divisions still persist long after the geopolitical events that, that created them have changed? And so that, that was what I ended up wanting to understand when I spent more time in Germany. And so the answer that I came to by the time, I don't have a book in front of me, but the, the answer that I ended up offering is that border crossings have really preserved everyday Vietnamese people's sense of nationhood while working to undo their commitment to ethnic nationalism. And so by border crossings, I mean both borders crossing over people through state formation and people crossing over borders through international migration. For nationhood, I really mean people's subjectively felt sense of belonging that relies on myths of common ancestry, shared language, culture, and so on. And by nationalism, I'm really talking about the principle that the nation and state should be one. So this political project to make sure that they all belong to the same nation and state. And I'm going to, in the rest of the talk, really share a lot of the stories that motivated how I got to this point. So the book, much like the rest of this talk, is really an exercise in analytically informed storytelling, where I'm trying to focus, not, not offer a new concept, conceptual apparatus or a new term or anything like that, but really just think about what it meant to me when everyday people would say, why can't we become whole again? Why is there still this division? Yet they were still very much acting on a shared sense of ethnic nationhood at point.
perspective and matter. So before I get into some of the storytelling, I did want to say that there were certain heuristics that many people on the site would use, including Vietnamese. And the first included the assumption that refugees were people who went to West Germany, that they came from South Vietnam, and that they were anti-communist and loyal to this yellow flag with three red stripes. People also assumed that contract workers were people who had come from North Vietnam, capital N, and went to East Germany or the Eastern Bloc, and that they were communist, or at least that they had family connections to the Communist Party, and so therefore they could be rewarded with these really coveted labor contracts to go abroad. But as you heard in the trailer by the first person I mentioned, was actually born in Northern Vietnam before the division of the country, and she was part of this wave of about a million folks who ended up moving from the north to the south and then later going abroad again as refugees. So there are plenty of folks who are abroad Vietnamese refugees who have northern roots. The contract worker program also started in the 1980s. So at that time, the country was already being unified. And so there were contract workers coming from all over Vietnam, including the central and southern regions as well. Nevertheless, people really used these heuristics, including Vietnamese folks, even if they knew exceptions, even if they were exceptions to this. So if they were, for example, Southern contract workers or Northern refugees. And so I reproduced some of these heuristics when I'm using their language, but I try to make sure to say when it's folks making these assumptions about these categories mapping onto each other when they don't actually do so very well. So the first field site that I want to tell you about, and I'd be happy to say more about my methods in the Q&A, is I conducted participant observation with two cultural organizations. The first that I call Refugees for Germany, and the second that I call Friendship Adventure. So they had two very different memberships and also very different approaches to new people. So the first one, Refugees for Germany, is largely refugees and or Southerners, again, because the two categories didn't always cohere. Friendship and Adventure was more of a social friendship club that was largely Northerners and or former contract workers, with a really important exception I'll talk about in a little bit. I met both of these organizations at around the same time, but my introduction to them was very different. So the first day that I went to Refugees for Germany, I went at the invitation of one of these uncles, and he ended up not talking to me. He said, just go to the kitchen and talk to the aunties. And there was a man there who I ended up calling Thai, who's in the trailer, and he doesn't talk to me at all the first day that I'm there. I don't actually talk to him about until about two weeks later, when he, we're sitting down at a table and he starts to ask me questions about my upbringing in the U.S., and so he's indicating to me at this point that he's already been asking about me before being willing to talk to me. By contrast, Jin, the other person who's featured in the trailer, or a character who is meant to symbolize Jin in the trailer, agrees to help me right away. She doesn't talk to me right away the first time that we meet, but it's not because she's trying to suss out my political background. We're actually just at a cultural event, at a karaoke night, and she's just having fun. She's eating with other folks. And then one of the aunts makes an announcement and says, there's a young Vietnamese American student. She's here to do research. We should all really try to help her. And so I sit down at this really long table across from Jin and her husband, Nia, 
And I say just a few words of greeting to them in Vietnamese, and they hear my Southern accent. And right away, Nia says, ah, oh, Saigon girls speak so sweetly. And they, <laughs> yeah, they agree right then and there to help me. So it's a totally different perception. Their events are also very different. So the events at Refugees for Germany really sought to meld South Vietnamese and German national belonging. So you would have these events that would play in succession the South Vietnamese national anthem, followed by the German national anthem, featuring the South Vietnamese flag right next to the German flag, the flag of Berlin today, for example. And it really was meant to be this kind of opportunity to convey South Vietnamese heritage, history, and culture to Germans, as well as to second generation Vietnamese German children of refugees. The events at Friendship and Adventure were really celebrations of a reunified nation. And they took for granted that the war is over. It's been over since 1975. And so this flag, this red flag with a yellow star is symbolizing the end of a bloody war. And so for them, it was really just about celebrating friendship, holidays, dressing in these traditional allies, and taking a lot of photos. So hopefully just from this brief introduction, you can already get a sense that how they approached newcomers and the ways, the varying degrees to which they gatekept were very different. And a lot of the gatekeeping, the policing of social networks would eventually come from refugees for Germany. So I'd like to, at this point, talk to you about two key interlocutors who, like me, were really trying to bridge both of these organizations, or if not bridge them, then at least try to participate in both of them. And they did so for different reasons. So the first is someone I call Hutton. She's born and raised in Haiphong in northern Vietnam, and she is a college student at the time that we meet. For part-time work, she's assisting with a psychology professor at a local university. And so she's trying to field all of these surveys about mental health, but she's having a hard time getting a hold of Southerners and refugees. So I say, okay, why don't you come with me? We'll go to some of the events. We will meet people. They've been really friendly. So why don't we check out some of those? And so the first event that we go to together, or one of the first events that we go to together, is an event that is called the, it's a cultural night for the Vietnamese refugee community of Berlin that happened in February 2016. And there were all of these signs that were posted at pagodas and different grocery stores that it was really meant to be seen and to invite folks to attend. So I tell Hunt that I can meet her there after I go to an RFG meeting. And when I get to the event, she's already arrived a few minutes before me. She's standing just back to the wall by herself, not really talking to anyone. And I show up and I'm like, how's it going? Have you been talking to anyone? Have you gotten any surveys? And she's like, no, I'm just kind of having a hard time and the food is too sweet. So a lot of kind of differentiation along the lines of food, culture, music, some of the things that we were talking about earlier. So the event kicks off and you have things like karaoke, kids as young as four years old singing these so-called yellow songs that are reminiscent of life in South Vietnam before 1975. And at, at some point, I'm singing along with all of these songs that I know from my childhood, growing up Vietnamese American in Southern California. And I look over at Han, and she's shifting. She's feeling really uncomfortable. And then she points to this sign above the stage that's etched onto the pattern of the former flag, the, the flag of former South Vietnam. And it reads, Freedom Spring. 
So up until this point, I'm participating in this performance of the nation, right? I'm consuming it alongside all of these other folks. But then looking over at Hatton, I can see that for her, it's really jarring to see these symbols that don't get to be politically banal because it's representing a country that no longer exists. So when Northerners like Hatton look at the red flag with the yellow star today, they don't see the flag of North Vietnam. They see the flag of Vietnam. That's the internationally recognized flag for the country today. And it symbolizes the end of a really bloody war. But to her, this flag is something that is conjuring up a lot of this conflict again. I would, I, I keep trying to introduce her to folks over the next couple of weeks and months. And we actually checked in even years after I left Berlin about how the survey was going. But one of the other folks who I tried to introduce her to was an uncle I call Hua. I'll say more about him in the next slide or two. But she first met him at a Refugees for Germany meeting. And he came over to say hi to me. He heard her Northern accent. And he made a point of saying, oh, I'm going to host folks who are protesting to stay at my place soon. They're going to be coming to Berlin to protest. And I just want to make it clear, Hutton, because you're a Northerner, that I'm against the communist regime, not communist individuals. So ostensibly, he's trying to make her feel better when he says this. But what he's also doing is really drawing a distinction between who belongs in what he sees as a very politically circumscribed nation. I'll come back to him in a little bit, but the second person I want to introduce you to, the second key interlocutor who was really trying to spend time with both organizations is a woman I call N. She's born in the Mekong Delta of Southern Vietnam, and she actually came to reunified Germany, not West or East Germany. She overstayed her visa. And when I met her, she was just really gregarious, really outgoing, and just likes to make friends with everyone. So she started trying to help me, started trying to help Hutton with getting surveys. And repeat, you already heard a bit about him on the last slide. So one of the ways that she was trying to do this was she would tell folks in different organizations and across these two organizations, oh, B is this graduate student. She really needs help with her research. Could folks help her? Hutton is this student. She's trying to fill these surveys. Could you support her as well? So this really comes to a head one day when I'm interviewing Hua at his apartment. It's a one-bedroom apartment in Berlin, and all over the walls, he's got these ins military insignia from his time that he served as an officer in the army in southern Vietnam. He's also here connected it very closely to the flag of Germany. He produces the, the uniform that he wore when they say, oh, uncle, you seem to have so much military stuff. And he pulls out his uniforms, his badges from the divisions that he had served in. So this is still very much present for him. And he has this banner that he has made to pay homage to leading South Vietnamese political leaders who committed suicide on April 30th, 1975, instead of surrendering to the North. So his, his, allegiances, his attitudes, his everyday belief really center on South Vietnam. And after we're done talking, I'm interviewing him, and we're done talking, he says, what are you doing for the rest of the day? And I say, oh, I'm going to go visit Anne at her workplace. I don't invite him, 
but he says, okay, I'm going to come with you. Okay. But you know, you're a really bad judge of character. You shouldn't hang out with her. She doesn't have good taste in friends and she's always hanging out with these, these other folks, those folks over there. That's something I think Germans recognize when you say over there to signal over the former wall, right? So we take the, the train, go to her place of work. She's working at a, at a restaurant at this time. And once we arrive, I say hi to her. She greets us with a really bright smile, but Hua is just really frosty to her. A little while later, the owner of the restaurant, her husband comes. I call him Lao. He's an older man, also around Hua's age. And the two of them just start talking and, and chatting with one another. So An says, oh, while you're here, why don't you fill out the survey and help the student who's trying to pass out the survey? She, sees, she gives them copies of the survey, prints it out, and they take a look at it and they slam it on the table. And they're like, I'm not going to fill this out. This is really invasive. This uh, A communist sent this. And I'm like, well, what? <laughs> what specifically about the survey do you not like? And they're like, just ask me about my religion, ask me about when I left Vietnam. And I'm like, Uncle Hua, I just asked you those questions an hour ago, right? And he says, yeah, but you don't ask people to write it down. But in my head, I'm like, but I voice recorded you. And I took photos of your home with your permission. But it, it is also a record of these things that are happening. But I'm trying to de-escalate because I see where this is going, right? So they keep going back and forth. Lao and Hua, they're changing topics. They're chugging beers. They're chewing on these roasted peanuts as snack food. And then they come back to the survey something like an hour, an hour and a half later. And they're like, that's it. I'm going to take this survey to RFG, to the organizers. And if the organizers say they're going to allow this survey, then I'm going to know that the organizers are communist. And at this point, I'm like, uncle, I know Hutton. She really is just a student. She's not a spy. She's not working for the government. She's really just a student trying to fill the survey. I asked you all the same questions. And he explodes at me. He snaps and he says, I can ask him anything because I'm from the U.S. and I'm the daughter of a Southern officer who had been imprisoned. Had I been from Northern Vietnam, he said Vietnam, but I am from Vietnam. <laughs> had I been from Northern Vietnam and asking him these questions, he would have strangled me. Anna is scoffing. She's not taking him very seriously, but I'm looking at his face and his composure indicates complete seriousness. So I bring this up to really show that for a lot of folks in, in the field site, not just why he was an extreme example, but the idea of the ethnic nation and, and specifically allegiance to South Vietnam really persisted in everyday life. But it was also fascinating because I would ask him, what do you do in your spare time? And he said, well, I fundraise money to send to, to veterans in Vietnam who have been injured or disabled. I'm like, well, why do you do that, uncle? He said, because they're my ethnic kin. It's my nation. So it's this gatekeeping alongside very much actions that are showing how invested he is in a sense of Vietnamese nationhood. So up until now, I've been talking about these two organizations. They're in different parts of the city. They have different memberships, save for these two people, Hutton and, and then also me. And so I thought, what about places where people from different migration streams all come together? And the place that I found was the Lung Tu Pagoda in Western Berlin. 
So it was founded in West Berlin during the Cold War. It was founded by refugees and people who came through family reunification for refugees. And then when the Berlin Wall came down, they were one of the organizations, one of the primary organizations that mobilized to provide support for contract workers. So lay disciples of this pagoda would talk about going out to the wintry streets of Berlin, looking for Asian faces and saying, hey, are you with me? Come with me. I'll help you file for asylum. I'll just give you clothing, give you food, a place to stay. The relationships, by all accounts, would soon sour. And today, that physical division is still mapped onto the space. So this was very evident in my first day at the pagoda, where I walked into the ground floor around the right side where this tree is, the entrance to the kitchen. And I saw these two northerners, judging by their accents, who were just quietly maintaining the space, cooking, cleaning up. They offered me a bowl of vegetarian noodles, which was really nice in the cold. And then they sent me downstairs to the basement where a bunch of nuns and southern disciples were just singing songs, singing songs like Saigon is beautiful and making jokes about whether girls from Saigon or Mita, another city in southern Vietnam, were, were prettier. And so you can still see this physical division in the same space, in the same shared religious space that really emphasizes harmony and that all of the lay disciples see as emphasizing harmony and unity. Today, and by that I really mean 2016 or 2018, the last time that I visited, the pagoda is attended more so by northerners than by southerners. The contract worker numbers were just much larger than refugee numbers, and that's still the case today at this pagoda, but the sense that the pagoda belongs to southerners still persists. And this was really evident during the Lunar New Year's Eve celebration of 2016, where on this day, they're preparing feasts so that the spirits of deceased ancestors can come to enjoy meals with their loved ones. And so on the picture on the left in front, I've cropped out, there are these candies and all of these fruits that have been laid as offerings on the floor. And then disciples who are sitting behind the, the resident nuns are reciting the names of their deceased loved ones. And then after they're done honoring their ancestors, they go downstairs to the dining hall where it's been set up with these roll, these yeah, columns of circular tables with hot pot. And soon we're gonna start getting ready to feast. On the stage, right in front of the picture on the left, you see these yellow apricot blossoms. They're fake yellow apricot blossoms, but they're branching out from this ornate base. In Northern Vietnam, for the women you, you would tend to see pink cherry blossoms instead of yellow apricot blossoms. But soon a succession of karaoke singers are gonna start taking their turn going on stage. And then in between each of the karaoke singers, there's pre-recorded music that's playing. And one of the songs, I'm gonna make sure this is not too loud. One of the songs is called Cry a River, and it starts, I often think of home in the afternoons, especially on rainy afternoons. Luckily, California rains seldom, unlike Saigon, otherwise I'd have cried a river. I'm just going to pause that, but I hope you can hear. It's a very melancholic and nostalgic song, and it's playing repeatedly, which is really jarring because 
we're here for a very festive celebration, actually. And this is me sitting in the middle of one of these tables. We're getting ready to eat. We're in between a repeat of this song again. And there's a woman who's sitting two seats to my left. I've propped her out, but I call her home. And midway through the repeat of the chorus of the song, she reaches across the table to me. She's like, do you notice that? All of the songs are from the South. And she's indicating to whom the pagoda belongs. A lot of time with home, both before and after this event. And she was always very insistent. She always said, I don't discriminate against my Vietnamese brothers and sisters and friends with everybody, whether they're from the North or the South. And yet she took every opportunity to really mock what she saw as the Northerners' lack of proper etiquette or knowledge about how to conduct themselves in a, in a religious space. So these were some of the ways that, these were some of the ways that through their language and everyday interactions, people were really reproducing this division of Vietnam thousands of miles away from the homeland and decades after the reunification of the country. So I just wanted to share with you some of the stories that come out of this book and end by saying that for the folks I spent time with, the idea of the nation really shaped how they understood things like their opportunities at work, their friendship networks, and their religious practices. So social scientists know that the nation is not important to everyone all the time. But for my interlocutors, it was really important much of the time. And this was really evident in the ways that these labels of North, South, refugee, contract worker, communist, and anti-communist endure, even though there is no more North or South Vietnam. They are no longer contract workers or refugees. That ended really after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And yet these are still labels that we use to describe themselves and others. And so for me, the, the key thing was that through their routine words and actions, people are really keeping boundaries alive. And before I wrap up and open this up to a conversation, I really just want to affirm that this book's protagonist really rejected the political principle of one nation, one state, even as they would really insist on the importance of their shared ethnic nationhood. I'm looking forward to this conversation. First one, David Abraham, if you'd like to unmute and go right ahead and ask your question. Uh, yes, thank you very much for a very, uh, uh, very interesting and informative uh, presentation. So I don't know uh, very much about Vietnamese communities, but I know Berlin reasonably well. And one is, aside from the importation of uh, civil war conflicts uh, to and immigrant communities, um, I'd like to ask if you have a differential, a sense of the differential integration or success of Northerners and Southerners in Germany. I mean, wherever you go in Berlin, it seems, for example, that the petit bourgeois florist trade has become almost entirely Vietnamese. Uh, at the universities, you see what seems like a very goodly number of Vietnamese students. Uh, are these and other indicia of success uh, much more evident in former Southerners or former Northerners, or is it about the same? Are there educational and financial 
indicia relatively similar, dramatically different. I know that uh, there was a lot of um, black market kind of economic activity that because of their precarious state, northerner cigarette smuggling, things like that, that northerners kind of controlled for a number of years. Uh, how does that look now in terms of different levels of integration, material success, uh, education, et cetera? Thank you. Thank you for the question. And it's it's a good one and a hard one to answer in part because the statistics are hard to come by. And part of that is the way that Germany and a lot, like other European countries has a hard time with keeping track of race ethnicity, right? So once you move into the second generation, it's a little harder to piece out, are they second gen from contract worker backgrounds or from migration backgrounds? But that said, in terms of the overall picture of integration, I would say that they're very similar, except that the contract, the children of contract workers, but also contract workers compared to refugees have much more of a range. So 30 years out from the fall of the Berlin Wall, did I do my math right? Has it been about 30 years? Yeah. So 30 years out, you'll have a lot of refugees who now have citizenship, who speak fluent German, who work for German corporations. You also see that among some former contract workers. You will also, however, see former contract workers who migrated in the later wave of contract work migration right before the fall of the Berlin Wall. They weren't the economic elites. They never fully mastered German. And so they're living on the German welfare state or they're doing these kind of jobs under the table. So there's just much more of a range. In terms of what you're noticing with this conversation about the the cigarette, the so-called cigarette mafia, there are actually still signs around Berlin, or at least in 2016 and 2018, there were signs around Berlin that would say things like, if you're supporting the cigarette mafia, you're if, if you're buying illegal cigarettes, you're supporting the mafia, or illegal cigarettes are supporting terrorism and things like that. And there's a scholar, Noah Ha, who kept track of when the issue of cigarette mafias would come up at city council meetings, and it was always in the context of Vietnamese. So but that is very much something that is associated with Vietnamese from the former North or central regions, Vietnamese who presumably came as contract workers or later. And so when that started to filter over to the West and it spoiled the image of how all Vietnamese were perceived, not just those who had come through these socialist mobilities. To the question of their children, it seems like there's a lot of German news that's just talking about the Vietnamese second gen economic or not even educational miracles, kind of talking about the ways that, for example, in some neighborhoods in Lichtenberg, for example, you have a really high proportion of Vietnamese children who are attending gymnasium, which is the most prestigious track for high school. But I would say that it's pretty spread across both migration streams. So to answer your question in a really long-winded way. <laughs> there, they have a lot of overlap, but the contract worker outcomes are just a lot more spread out. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Yeah, I, I have a question. Because the politics about unification, I mean, when I kind of Echo my 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 in China like you are in Chinatown like in the Manhattan Chinatown you can see some people were pro uh, CCP the Communist Party in China and some people pro the uh, KMT which is Nationalist Party 
uh, in Taiwan. So, so every time when they go through, you know, when they encounter different issues, different debate, the national, I mean, the, the nationalism always go beyond all kinds of topics. So I, I was kind of curious, uh, in the Vietnamese context in Berlin, like when they're talking about, when they're talking about nationality, so people were, you know, stand in different side and maybe have different agreement. But when they're talking about different, like social issue, like social justice issue, it is two group of people that stand on the same side or they, or they still will be categorized by, by their ide- political ideology. Because in China's context, I think, the camp, the pro camp camp and the pro, pro CP camp, I, in any, even regardless of the different social issue, they always stand in the opposite side because the national, the politics of nationalism always go beyond, I mean, prevail beyond any kind of social issue. Yeah. So I, I wonder, wondering the impact. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for that question, Jiang. And I, I love this question because that's what I came into the site expecting. I actually came in expecting they're going to have very different politics. They're going to vote for different parties. And then I mentioned earlier in the talk that I actually just changed the topic from thinking about explicit politics, in part because people were saying very similar things. They had seemed to converge on an understanding of German welfare, state good, Vietnamese one-party system, that a lot of people supported the Socialist Party, including former refugees or people who were avowedly anti-communist. And I would say, can you tell me more about that? So what is what does that mean to you? And they would say, well, you have to understand a socialist party within a multi-party system is very different from a socialist state where it's just a one-party system. And so it was fascinating to me to talk to folks and ask them questions, especially when elections were about to loom, where they would be like, I don't understand why anyone would support a candidate who's anti-immigrant. They said very similar things. And when they, when folks would tell me about opportunities or attempts to bridge the divides, it would be prefaced on this idea that we share very similar criticisms of the Vietnamese state. And we're here and now, we're trying to build a life here. Why don't we get together and play football, you know, play, play soccer. But then maybe the, the refugee team would say, okay, let's take a photo of all of us. Let's put the yellow flag here. And then the other team would say, hey, we understand. And actually, a few of us would have preferred if that flag had won, but we still have family in Vietnam. And so we can't be in this photo with you. And so it would fall apart for things that seem on the surface like they were political, but actually weren't about shared or, or unshared politics. Thanks for that. Uh, so do you see that kind of division that you're talking about going away in the second or third generation, or do you see that perpetuating for identity or political reasons? Yeah, thanks for that question. Jerry? Yeah. Thanks, Jerry. So I did talk to I did talk to and spend time with a few second generation mm-hmm. folks. A lot of the things that I was hearing about had happened years before I ever arrived on the scene, mm-hmm. but they would talk to me about going to college and encountering other Vietnamese people or other Vietnamese people who they knew were from a different region in Vietnam. And there was actually someone who was a Southern child of refugees who said, growing up, my parents told me, if you ever meet a Northerner, that person will try to kill you. And so he said, I really expected if I ever met someone, they would try to kill me. But then they would get to college and they'd be like, oh, you're not, we're not actually that different. We should, you know, try to have conversations and things like that. 
But then if they switched over, this is an interesting way that poly- that language gets entangled in this. Right. If they switched over to speaking Vietnamese and someone would hear their Northern accent and then be like, oh, you're Northern, therefore you live in Eastern Germany and would say things like, oh, I didn't know that you spoke such good German over there. And so it's a way that these markers that, again, are not necessarily markers of their politics or anything that they believe in still become a stand-in for you are suspicious and you are different from us. So there have been attempts to bridge, but the last I had followed up, they had not been succeeding. Thank you very much. Thanks for that. I have a question building on that and what you just mentioned. Uh, the second or third generation to still keep uh, the spatial uh, divide within the city, like people who were originally or their families were young from the north, stay in the east, uh, uh, and southerners in the west part of the city. Uh, how, are, how do they locate within Berlin? Yeah, thanks for that question. That actually connects to the I think to the first question by David. So part of how I could have also responded to that question about the integration outcomes is that when the Berlin Wall came down, a lot of the folks who originally came to Western Berlin as refugees or through family reunification for refugees, they stayed put, right? But for the folks who were in the former East, many of them stayed put. Some of them ventured West to open up businesses, to find opportunities and things like that. So the East is still predominantly folks who came as former contract workers or came later after the reunification of Germany. But in the West, you get a little bit more of a mix. But you still have segregation, even if they're now living in similar parts of the city, you still have segregation in their cultural networks. You still have segregation in their religious networks, with the one exception of Lindsay Pagoda. So that actually wasn't the only Pagoda where I did field work. I was at three pagodas. The other two were in the eastern part of the city, and they were all northerners and or former contract workers. So there's some spatial segregation that remains, but even for the folks who have moved westward, even for the folks from the former east or who came as contract workers who have now acquired citizenship, even for the folks who are avowedly anti-communist, it doesn't seem to bridge the divide. And so the only thing that made sense for me in thinking about What are they saying when they say that they're so sad that Germany has been able, that Germans have been able to reunify and they haven't? Is behind all of that, what I hear is it would be nice to reunify, but actually the reunification has happened and they're not that invested in the country that has remained. And so the idea that they need to belong to the same nation state is just not a project that they're invested in anymore. Yeah, I have another one because I, I curious because this is a country in Berlin, but I was wondering because during the Vietnam War, so many refugees, Vietnamese refugees go to Australia and go to France, right? I wondering whether they have this kind of divide in the community because I want I want to understand why this division in Berlin is more significant kind of uh, or have yeah so how about the divide in different community different country among Vietnamese. Yeah, thank you so much for that question. So I grew up in Southern California, right, which is another site of a really large Vietnamese American community. And 
was part of why I didn't want to do my work there because there had been so many blow-ups. And so these divides that you're talking about, but the key thing is the divides that I was seeing there were actually, it was a misnomer to call them anti-communist protests because no one who was being protested was communist. And so it was actually arts organizations or people who would do things like show a film that was made by a Vietnamese director or bring a Vietnamese singer from Vietnam to the U.S. or things like that. You mentioned another really cool case, which is France, right? And thinking about how there were people going to France before the division of the, before before the reunification of Vietnam, including folks who would really identify as communists. And then the big refugee waves really came after 1975. But in both of these cases, the U.S. and France, if there was any sort of heterogeneity in the migration streams, it was separated in time. And so because in the U.S. it's predominantly refugees and because in France the waves happen at different times, I couldn't tell if there are political issues. Is it really about politics or is it about differential integration and claims on the French or U.S. nation state and belonging? And so Germany for me was really cool because these waves really started at the same time, 1979, 1980. Um, uh, thank you very much for very interesting. Uh, I'm a Chinese student. I kind of share uh, the, the reflections of uh, this really well. Um, in your in your work, the in your project, there's a I think there's a kind of collective assumption among the uh, informants, like this 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 sense of uh, traditions are bad. They are like they represent symbolizing scars, wounds, and this sense of fullness is something we need to strive for, or like uh, at least people feel like striving for that wholeness as kind of healthiness, vis a vis the divisions as, as, as the unhealthy state being. I wonder, if, because I think divisions um, in China, Vietnam, uh, Korea, uh, even in countries like Japan, they're very unified, very have, uh, homo, homo, uh, homogeneous, but there are a lot of divisions. I think divisions are more like norm rather than the abnormal. Mm -hmm. So wholeness is, is actually uh, actually an exception. So did you ever encounter such um, such a narrative, or did you, in your view, did you ever choose to challenge your informants? Uh, what do you think about this kind of uh, assumption, big assumption here? And also, another theme I can see in your project, people longing for home, or their sense of, uh, I cannot, I'm powerless. Uh, I cannot control or affect what is going on at the national level. But I know very well what is going on at the national level. The politics affect my personal opportunities in my personal life. And that sense of powerlessness, how that is related to their longing for a home. What does this home um, symbolize for them. Like it, it's like a, a territory where I can exert my sovereignty over my own destiny or something else. I, I want to give more if, if there is enough budgets. Yeah, thank you for that. So the first question, just to make sure I understand, was did I ask people, did I inquire more about how they understood this idea that they needed to be made whole again? Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 because I think 
rather than wholeness as normal and mm -hmm. uh, division as exception, it's actually the opposite. So it's the is the world. So why people take for granted the opposite is the case, right? Rather than people are kind of engaging with the uh, with, with reality in a conceptual way. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. So to answer that first question, then I I didn't come in necessarily asking people if they were divided or unified. I just said I want to hear about your lives and Vietnamese American who's interested in the lives of Vietnamese people here. And so one of the first quotes that I showed by someone I call Lan, who said, "I look at Germans and they're they're so lucky. Why were they able to unify like that when we weren't?" A lot of folks would say that. And then I didn't, I, when I would ask them, well, what do you mean by that? It, people didn't respond and say, we should be one country again, or we should be whole again. It was really more of this lamenting of this really bloody, protected, violent, disruptive war, right? And the idea that Germany has been able to reunify in a way that to their mind, has brought everyone back under a shared umbrella of German belonging. But they're speaking about that from the perspective of the accession of East Germany by West Germany. So to their minds, they're like, Germany, as we know it, they have reunified. That's completely erasing the experiences of folks who are East German who don't feel like they've been reunified. They feel like they, or at least as I've read <laughs> and have spoken to some folks about, it feels like that was erased all of the contributions of East Germany have been erased. And now it's the West's narrative of Germany that really prevails, right? So part of it is a misreading of what has actually happened in Germany from the perspective of folks who came to West Germany. And the other part of it is, again, they're not really saying we should all come together because then to my mind, the corollary would be, but it has reunified. Vietnam has reunified. And so it's not that they're saying we need to be made whole again because division is bad and the country needs to be together. It's more so this was a terrible thing that happened and it tore apart families and it ruined a lot of lives. But now that it's happened, people aren't really waiting with bated breath for Vietnam to, for communism in Vietnam to fall or anything like that. So that was the first part of your question. And can, I'm sorry, can you remind me of this? A little more about how they understand how they envision what is home in such a kind of uh, they are migrant floating yeah. in another foreign land. Yeah. They, are, they cannot go back to their homeland, but they, they're talking about home in the poem, right? So yeah. A little more about their sense yeah. of what is home. And that sense of powerlessness vis-a-vis what's going on at the national level. They cannot impact all right? Yeah, thank you for that. So I'm actually going to pick back up on a question that Shan asked me earlier to respond to this. And I'll give you two examples, just two kind of different folks. So the first I'm going to talk about is Thai, who I talked about in the trailer as well. So he was born in northern Vietnam, moved south or was carried into the south as a baby in 1954, left again as a refugee. And when I met him, spent a lot of time with him from 2015 to 2016, I asked, well, have you been back to Vietnam? And he said, yeah, I went back once and I stayed in my hotel room the whole time. I was like, can you tell me more about that? And he said, you know, people can be upset, people can be hurt, but don't let them feel despair because then there's nothing left. And that's how I felt 
coming back to this place that I wanted to retain all of my memories of this place that I loved from my childhood and my memories, but it's not there anymore. So that's one person, right? I'm going to contrast him with someone who came to West, uh, sorry, to East Germany as a former contract worker, and then actually came back to lead a regiment of, as a group leader, someone who was fluent in German, someone who at the time that I met him had German citizenship, was fluent in German, and actually worked as a social worker to help other Vietnamese folks with paperwork and things like that. And I would ask about, do you go back to Vietnam? He said, I do, but every time I go back, it feels more and more like I don't, I can't relate to this place. Every time I go back, it feels more and more like this is not where I want to be. And so they were saying very similar things, even though they were coming from two different migration streams and presumably two different politics. They did not. They actually supported the same party, the same attitudes toward Vietnam. But what was really interesting was that the person who is a northerner, who identifies as a northerner, not as a southerner, even though they were both born in the north, I think I call him Vo in the book, so I'm going to stick with that, Vo, would say, you know, it's hard because people like me who were socialized under communism, we just don't, we tend to be really apolitical. We really don't tend to get involved. And so it's just hard to watch all of this stuff that's happening in Vietnam right now. But it was fascinating because he was one of the people who mobilized after the fall of the Berlin Wall to get visas for former contract workers and eventually to push for this legislation that would regularize their stay. And so even though, again, saying similar things, have similar relationships to Vietnam, but they narrate it as one side has been completely affected, socialized, brainwashed, changed by communism in a way that the other side by hasn't. And so in this way, discursively, they are ejecting Southerners outside of the Vietnamese nation. I just want to thank our speaker. All you for joining. Thank you folks in Zoom for joining. Uh, we'll be having one more event in the seminar series, so please look out for it. I believe it's on December 7th, uh, Wednesday. So thank you.